electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the Nasdaq market site in New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Guy Dami, and Mike Ko. Tonight on Fast, we are trading the China crackdown. Chinese tech stocks falling hard again today as Beijing tightens the screws. We're breaking down the full fallout, plus a builder breakdown. The home building stocks getting hammered. We'll tell you what happened for the first time in over a year that sent these stocks tumbling. And later, one of our traders chasing a big loser in today's pullback, why they're seeing real opportunity in this beaten down name. We start off with today's market action. Stocks pulling back from all-time highs. The S&P and Dow both snapping five-day win streaks. The Nasdaq erasing its gains for the month of August. Industrials, materials, consumer stocks seeing the most weakness. Today's pullback comes as the consumer takes center stage. Retail earnings are rolling in. Walmart and Home Depot both under pressure despite posting strong results. Retail sales coming in weaker than expected, too. So what is the read on today's market drop? Tim, kick us off. Well, the, the retail sales weakness, so not terrible. Eight-tenths of a percent worse than expected. But some of the components in it, first of all, we continue to show a lot of inflation, but building materials, furniture sales, um, you know, things that actually had been big, bright spots and a signal that the consumer was ready to spend and, and then spend on durables and be supported by a tailwind in housing. You know, may, maybe maybe we've we've seen as good as it gets, even though I said last night and I, I believe that the tailwinds for housing, low interest rates, um, the asset bubble that is the housing market is still very much in favor of the consumer and their ability to lever up a little bit and spend a little of that money on their house. But um, and we'll talk more about Home Depot. But but I, I think, you know, that was part of the bleed through. You had it all happen on a day when Home Depot, ah, not so great. Some other retail sales uh, in terms of the bottom up stories around the companies, not so well. But the, the thing about today's market that I thought was notable was that everywhere you looked, you had weakness, and especially in areas that I think are synonymous with or at least should be equated to growth, correlated to growth, the SMH, so the Semiconductors Index. And, and again, you know, let's be clear, we're, we're back closed really at the, the 50-day moving average, which for, for, for this ETF, which measures you know, the semiconductor space and has been very, very much, I think, a leader for the market overall, there haven't been many times in the last two years where we've been resting on the 50-day. And, and I think we need to watch this. But I think other high-growth, high-multiple stocks that had had a pretty good boost, um, I think, are under some pressure. And, and I don't discount Fed minutes as being uh, you know, an insignificant part of this. In other words, I think that they are. Right. Uh, sorry for the double negative. Tomorrow. I think they are. Right. Karen. Well, so the retail numbers were a little bit surprising, but I don't know if built into those numbers is when you, they, they don't have the supply that you want. Right. When it ta- when it, like when a it, car, for instance. Right. And they say, you know, I went with my daughter buy something for her room and they said, oh, we'll ship it in early October. That's not, she said, forget it. I'm not going to even get it. And I don't know how much of that supply issue is built into that weakness in the retail numbers. There were some other pieces of data. What was it, by the way, for her room? It was just betting. (laughs) Anyway, whatever. It's a big party. You'll see it next weekend. Um, She, so anyway, that's a different issue. (laughs) But there were some positive things. Capacity utilization, I think industrial production. There were some things that were were better. So I, I don't. I mean, maybe we're slowing a little because of this Delta variant, but I, I still think the consumer is absolutely there. And this is I think this will end up being a small blip. 
In terms of the, the overall impact on the economy, though, Guy, I mean, what retail sales does not capture or don't capture is, is spending on travel, for instance. That does, that's not included. I mean, what we saw from recent credit card data put out by J.P. Morgan and Bank of America is that there has been a sharp pullback in money spent on airline tickets, for instance. And if you, in aggregate, look at what the consumer is spending, maybe that is, in fact, slowing. Yeah, and obviously we heard some commentary from Southwest Air would backs that up. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really interesting. Last night we played a game of Rap It or Scrap It, Mel. You weren't here, mm. but both I, Karen and Nadine we were... What we play? Shop, Shop it, it or, or drop, drop it. it. Come on, guy. I mean... Oh, yeah, that, that, yeah sorry. I apologize. It's not that time <laughs> of year. Let's scrap it. Rap It or Scrap It on. we typically do in December. <laughs> but Nadine and Karen both said you got to scrap, or excuse me, you got to fade uh, Home Depot, and they were spot on. <laughs> Listen, I thought the Home Depot quarter was going to be fantastic. I thought we'd go ratcheting through the 345. I mentioned that because a lot of these stocks, maybe they just got ahead of themselves. And now the technicians are going to start to talk about potential double tops in Home Depot. Now people are going to start to look at valuation. That's what's most concerning with me. And I've said all along, never underestimate the U.S. consumers want to spend. But if things are not available or if things are too expensive, that's where we have a problem. And by the way, I'm sure Joe Lavorne will speak of that, but that's what puts the Fed in a bit of predicament here. Mm. Mike Yeah, I mean, one thing about Home Depot, I mean, it it's, might be a little bit uh, more expensive relative to its history right now, probably trading around 23 and a half times earnings. I think one of the things that, that we obviously have to think about is that some of these companies benefited mightily from, you know, basically the economy that was over the course of the last uh, 18 to 24 months or so. And we can't expect uh, 17, 18, 19 percent EPS growth for Home Depot and the like going forward necessarily. I think that, you know, that tailwind becomes potentially a little bit of a headwind. And I think we're seeing that now as people are sort of lowering their EPS expectations for Home Depot. But I do agree with Karen that I don't think that the consumer is, uh, you know, completely giving up here. I do think, though, that the news that we're getting is going to hurt travel. I think it's going to hurt business travel even more than recreational travel. That's probably going to be tough on names like American Express and the people that depend more on business travel than they do on the recreational traveler, who doesn't seem to be quite as impacted. But either way, uh, you know, we are not where we were a couple of months ago with everybody sort of coming out of their holes and thinking that uh, all was well again. Why do you think, Tim, there is this sort of softness, moderation, slowdown, whatever you want to, however you want to characterize retail sales uh, and the data we've seen recently from credit cards? Do you think it's because of Delta? Do you think it's just because there was a lot of pull forward because of stimulus? Do you think I do. people are going back to work and so they're not going to build that deck or, or you know, plant their flower beds like they, they were before? I, I mean, I still have flower beds to plant and the summer's almost over, <laughs> so I don't know what I've been waiting for. But I, I, I do think you have had an amazing pull forward. I, 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 I don't want to be dismissive of the Delta variant. I think we make it very clear we're not being socially insensitive. I think from from the economic perspective and the impact, um, we're going to get through this. And, and I think we, we, we certainly have a sense of where the economy has been pulled forward. I think what we've had it, through a parade of earnings that have been very good earnings is we've been forced to look at the two-year stack. We've been forced to assess where these companies are found now talking about a normalized earnings outlook and, and maybe some weaker COVID uh, Delta variants. But, but the, the reality is that how many, you know, how, how many toaster ovens do you need to buy? How many washing machines? I mean, I, I, I need to buy a few. But, um, no, I, I think there's been an enormous pull forward. And I do think that um, despite the strength of the housing market and, it, and the ability for that to have duration through this, yeah, I, I mean, there's, there's some, we've dealt with pent up. 
in terms of the impact on the economy and, and therefore the market send guy, isn't that worse than a, the blip or whatever you want to call it, the temporary nature of a Delta variant impact? I think it's worse. Absolutely. I mean, to the extent that it is a lot of pull forward stuff and we're headed into the fall and then you throw on Delta variant on top of it. I do think it sort of augurs poorly for the broader market. But I've thought that for a while, Mel, and the market continues to grind higher today, notwithstanding. So, you know, label me a bit of a fool on that front. But again, I think the picture that's in front of us could be concerning. And at a certain point, the market's going to care. By the way, you know, one thing you should watch, and I've said this for a while, the Russell, the IWM, whatever you look at, um, that sort of can't get out of its own way. And if that starts to roll over here and we're precipitously close to it, in my opinion, historically, that's sort of led the broader market by a month, month and a half. That's something we should need. I think we need to watch. All right. Um, for more on all of this, let's bring in Joe Lavornia, the chief economist of the Americas at Natixis. Joe, great to see you again. Thank you. Great to be with you guys. Have we seen the best of it in terms of growth and, and how much of a slowdown should we brace ourselves for? We have seen the, uh, the peak in growth. Uh, I was calling for that uh, several months ago. And partly it reflects, Melissa, that this year will be a boom for growth. We'll see GDP up near 7%. Uh, and historically, if we grow at six or more, which we will for 2021, the economy in the following year on average falls by half of that or grows at half as fast. So if we're at seven, historically, we'd be at three and a half. If we were at six, we'd grow at three. However, given the amount of stimulus the government has um, has put in the economy and the focus all being on the consumer and the pent-up demand, as Tim was saying earlier, we've pulled a significant amount of stimulus uh, forward. So next year, growth will disappoint consensus. And I look for real GDP measured on a Q4 and Q4 basis of sub 2%, which will make it very hard for the Fed to taper and, of course, very hard for the Fed to tighten. Joe, so let me ask you, I'm not quite sure the last thing you said, but my question is about inflation and what if inflation is lower, does that help GDP or, are they, or is inflation higher, better for GDP? Uh, well, I'm looking at real GDP, Karen. So, I mean, if we're getting inflation, that's a problem. And it reflects the fact the economy is operating above its long term potential. Uh, OMB. Uh, sees potential GDP at sub 2%. So that's where we'll be next year. But the inflation will, I don't think we have a lot of inflation coming, but where we're going to have inflation, which we haven't really seen yet, is on the housing side, specifically rents, which lag this massive run-up we've seen in home prices. So you're going to get some moderation in goods because uh, Tim is buying a lot of toasters, but you know the toaster demand will weaken. Absolutely. But on the, on the rental side, which is the dominant driver of inflation, you're going to see higher prices. So we're going to be in a situation next year where growth is going to slow pretty sharply. Inflation, it's not going to be like the 70s, but you're going to see higher inflation than what we've been accustomed to. So it'll be a little bit stagflationary in some sense. Do you think that um, inflation lasting through next year or until next year, is that transitory, Joe? I'm just trying to, you know, no, it's what not. does an economist so, think of, of transitory in the Fed's use of the term? So most of this, that what I had believed uh, for much of the spring that this would be transitory because it was a post-pandemic reopening and there was a lot of demand and supply couldn't catch up. There were COVID restrictions, et cetera. And eventually these uh, price pressures would moderate. I still think that to be the case. But given the amount of government spending we've had since then, we passed a $1.9 trillion package in March. We're likely to pass an infrastructure bill. We may pass a, an American Families Plan, which is another three-plus trillion. I mean, we're spending so much money. We're running deficits that are so high. In fact, if you look at the OMB's forecast versus the CBOs, 
OMB is forecasting cumulative deficit to GDP 13 points higher than CBO for the next five years. And if that's the environment we're in, that transitory inflation will become permanent. I'm sorry, there's just no way around it. So, but Joe, th this brings us back to the Fed, which is where you're going with this. They're trying to monetize a deficit. They can't really raise rates. Um, but I'm worried about, as a market participant, I'm not asking you to make a call there. Um, but, it, but what does this mean for the Fed and what you think they're seeing that we're going to hear tomorrow about this inflation that's out there? Because I, I think the market, we, we, you know, we talked about this. You, there's no way you can dismiss um, the Fed begin to taper, even if their balance sheet continues right. to grow, in my view. Tim, here's the problem for the Fed. The Fed is in a box. Uh, Treasury supply has been very low this year relative to the size of the deficit because the Treasury has run down its cash balance by over a trillion dollars. The Treasury has to issue a lot more debt. If they do the spending that they might get through, they get to issue even more debt. I don't see how the Fed, which has bought roughly 45, 46 percent of net marketable issuance since this pandemic began, I don't see how the Fed can ever back away, can ever taper. They're the big buyer. So really, monetary policy at this point is going to be hostage to what happens on the fiscal side. What does Congress do when it comes back next month? That really is going to dictate, to my mind, where interest rates go and by default equities, because we know the Fed has used QE in the asset channel, specifically stocks, as the primary conduit of monetary policy. Joe, great to get your thoughts. Good to see you. Thanks, everybody. Joe Lavornia of Natixis. Mike Coe, what do you make of all this? The Fed in a box. Is that so terrible? Yeah, I, I, I think it's I think it's a pretty sticky situation, of course, uh, although, I mean, we've seen in other economies that you can be in that sticky situation for a relatively long time. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you have good, uh, real economic growth for a period. I mean, so we had a situation. We obviously we can look at places like Japan where they've had massive debt issuance. They've obviously uh, been able to you know keep their rates relatively low. But going along with that is that they've had a relatively slow-growing economy. Now, in our case, what we worry about, of course, is that we have the relatively slow-growing economy, uh, but then we combine that instead of with uh, basically uh, no inflation or even a deflationary environment, kind of like they experienced there, with an inflationary environment. And if we get that, that's going to be quite unhealthy. And I will say that you know, as much power as the Fed has, it could actually get a bit out of control. And I think that's how those things tend to happen. Guy, your thoughts? Just speaking my language, I agree. I mean, he, he does not believe these this inflation pressures are going to be transitory. I agree with him there. And, you know, if you see sort of the stagflation environment, I, you know, I, I've read some textbooks, but I don't think there's any arrow in the Fed's quiver that can combat that. So it creates a bit of a problem for them. The one thing that I would continue to watch, and probably Tim can speak to this as well, you know, the relative strength of the dollar has been interesting lately. You know, you wonder what happens to the dollar under the backdrop that Joe just talked about. That's something I would be watching as well. All right. Coming up, the China tech takedown. Chinese tech stocks under pressure again today as the country tightens its grip on the Internet sector. We'll break down the full fallout. Plus, home builders crumbling as sentiment falls to its lowest level in over a year. Is this red hot run coming to an end? We are deconstructing that trade. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC. Be back right after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. 
Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. Take a look at the home builders falling today. The XHB ETF seeing its worst day in more than three months. As names like Toll Brothers, Pulte, DR Horton, they're all down. The move coming as a key measure of builder sentiment fell to the lowest level in over a year. The sector under pressure from the rising costs of materials and skilled labor. Um, let's trade this group. That's a that's a real issue for margins, Karen. Two key components. Yes. Well, labor and raw and material raw costs. materials. Right. Um, that is true. I think, though, that we're not entering this wildly offsides with um, supply, just, you know, excess supply. Mm. So I think of this as somewhat short term. I don't think that this is the end of the demand for houses. So, I mean, they've had an enormous run. It's not shocking that they pulled back some. I look at the HGX, which is not just home builders, but, you know, the Masco and other related things. And, you know, that's down to peaked at 500. I think it's like 470, high 470s. So I'm long. I have Home Depot. I have Lowe's. Um, Not surprising that their earnings weren't good enough. I think, you know, we've seen that when expectations are really high. Did have a really good quarter. It didn't matter. But on Home Depot, it makes it look like, you know, the building demand is still there. Mm -hmm. And so I think they'll be able to pass along prices. And as long as rates are low, which they are, that uh, there'll still be demand for home building, for for housing. Before the pandemic, there was a a supply imbalance between supply and demand. I mean, right? I mean, there was much more demand than supply even then. And that's why the housing market was hot then. It only got hotter during the pandemic, guys. So maybe this decline, you know, in, in builder sentiment the lowest in over a year, maybe that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. But now you got to figure out where to buy these stocks. I mean, in the, the, the home builders that you mentioned, Pulte, DHI, Toll Brothers, all of them seemingly topped out on the same day, mid-May. I want to say May 17th. I'm probably off by a couple of days. And they've all had pretty precipitous drops. The problem is it doesn't feel like they've sort of had their flush to the downside where you, you have the big volume days, the capitulation that we typically look for to find a bottom. We, I don't think we've seen it yet. So Although Karen's spot on and all the assertions she makes, you know, the stocks have not been trading well. And you have to wonder, you know, have we seen the day where they sort of get everybody out? I don't think we've seen it yet. Mike, what have you seen in the options market in terms of positioning here in this group? Yeah, I mean, well, we were actually talking about Home Depot and Lowe's last Friday. For those that watched the show, I know you were, you were out on Friday, so you didn't get to hear what we were talking about there. But you know, I think a lot of what we are saying about uh, those companies also is true for the home builders. I think an important thing to remember, of course, is that when rates are low, uh, the reason that spurs demand, of course, is that in the absence of anything else, in a vacuum that's lowering the cost of housing, it's lowering people's monthly payments. But what has happened over the course of all of this, in addition to seeing rising input costs for home building, both in the form of labor and in the terms of uh, materials is that home prices have risen. In some markets, they've risen very, very sharply. And essentially, what's going to happen when you see that is it's going to create a little bit of a softening in demand as it gets out of reach, oftentimes for first-time home buyers. And I think that's what we're seeing in many markets. And so I think that helps account 
I think, for what's going on in the home builder space. You have to have a happy medium where there is good demand at a price that is affordable. So for the, especially those home builders that are focusing on first-time home buyers, I think this creates a little bit of pressure in those inflated markets. All right. Uh, we've got an after-hours alert on Tilray. The cannabis stock popping after announcing a deal to take a majority stake in cannabis retailer MedMen. Tilray CEO Erwin Simon talking about the deal last hour on CNBC. What MedMen does for Tilray, it gives us a great brand. Ultimately, once legalization happens, it gives us potential to own a great company that we can you know, ultimately take into the rest of the world. Canada has opportunities for MedMen. Europe has opportunities for MedMen. There's opportunities at wholesale. And as I announced a few weeks ago, I have a $4 billion objective to get to by 2024. And this is, you know, the start of it. I mean, basically, in a very short amount of time, Tim, MedMen lost a lot of its market value. It had been one of the most valuable, if not the most valuable, publicly traded cannabis companies in the world. Um, and it was Absolutely. described in a Forbes article as a slow-burning dumpster fire not too long ago. Well, they, they were growth at all costs, and yeah. they, they eradicated and wasted so much capital, and it was poorly run business, et cetera. They built a brand. Um, right. And so what Erwin's talking about, and we, we've known Erwin for a long time on CNBC and on Fast Money, he's a brand builder. And, and, and Tilray, which is a Canadian LP without access to U.S. markets or so it seemed, has now given themselves a mechanism to actually begin to, to open up a huge addressable market in the U.S. This is what a lot of the Canadian players are, are, are going to do. So, you know, for me, this is a really exciting moment for Tilray. It's a big position in my ETF. It's a story where um, the MedMen business, um, for all their failures, um, there's some very very good assets in place. And this is like this is a company a lot of people in the industry have been looking over these assets and that balance sheet for, for months and Tilray right. was the most aggressive here. I mean, I guess part of this is Erwin Simon, Karen, and we know Erwin from being the CEO of Haynes Celestial. And he had a stable of really strong uh, brands that he put together, the company had. Yeah, he is a master, as Tim said, of brand building. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think in this space, that's going to be really important. Uh, that, I mean, that's what MedMen did, as you said. Oh, that right. was the value, right, was the brand. And I think that someone like Irwin, I mean, he'll have a good time. Uh, <laughs> one way or another. I think like he's uh, having one Financially now. and otherwise. <laughs> All right. We've got a lot more ahead here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. The crackdown continues. China tightening its grip on Internet stocks. So how should you trade the group? Plus, a real opportunity. One name falling hard today, but that's not stopping Karen from snatching it up. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Fast Money. We are following new developments out of China. Chinese tech stocks under pressure once again today as regulators roll out new restrictions for the space. Eunice, Eunice in Beijing with all the details. Eunice. 
China has unveiled draft rules of engagement for the internet sector, tightening controls on how tech companies compete and handle user data. The market regulator says the move is meant to root out what Beijing considers unfair tactics, using algorithms to influence users' choices, creating fake reviews, offering cash incentives for positive ratings, or spreading misinformation about rivals. Separately, China announced regulations to protect its critical IT infrastructure. From September 1st, operators here need to conduct security reviews and yearly risk assessments, and prioritize purchasing networking products and services deemed secure by Beijing. And according to corporate filings, the Chinese government has taken ownership stakes of TikTok owner ByteDance and China's version of Twitter, Weibo. Thank you, Eunice. Eunice Yun in Beijing.、Um, just when you thought it couldn't get worse, it gets worse, and then it gets worse again, and then it gets worse again. Tim, <laughs> an algorithm is Big Brother, too, by the way. So this is where the Chinese government probably feels this is really uncomfortable for them, because you know ultimately that that is what technology is supposed to do. It's supposed to basically track consumers' trends, what their interests are, what they what they want to be, you know, pitched, and, and actually a lot of consumers like that.、Um, but but. Back to these stocks, and if you look at the KWeb ETF, which is essentially the Chinese internet sector,、um, down 60 percent in 120 days,、um, just as it was breaking out to all-time highs. The, the sadness for a guy that's been investing in emerging markets for 20 years is that EM, of which China is 43 percent of the index,、uh, was just starting to break to all-time highs. It took、um, from you know basically pre-crisis, and, and a lot of people actually have been hit head-on by this bust. I don't think you can gauge and you can handicap the Chinese. Government at this point, and and I, I you know I think I kind of went,、uh, you know the last month is where I said enough's enough.、Um, I actually believe in these companies,、uh, but I don't believe in this environment, and I don't think it's going to change. At what point, Karen, do you say you know a fundamental analysis doesn't apply to the situation? A couple weeks ago,、uh, when I bought、yeah. puts, and that that sort of you know I'm like okay, this is my risk, and I'll、mm-hmm. they're in the money, so I will put that stock and have zero exposure. You know, I agree with Tim. It's you know, I I just can't get back in it. I feel like all right, I've lost money there. You don't need to make it back where you lost it, right? So、uh, I'll just let that position. And for most investors, you don't. You know, I, again, I'm a guy who's invested in EM. Most investors say, I don't need to do this. I、right. I, I want to invest in high tech. I want to invest in mega cap tech companies. I don't need to do it、uh, with the Chinese government as、uh, an. Un- Predictable force here, and I think that's part of what we haven't seen yet in terms of the flow of capital of big institutional folks who are crossover investors、right. who don't have to invest here, and we haven't even seen a lot of the earnings revisions and the downgrades yet,、uh, and that flow of capital. Right, and so the question is, where does that capital go? And as Kathy Wood posited, does it actually benefit technology here, Mike? What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I think it does. You know, I think.、Uh, It was a couple of months ago we were talking about Baba. Now this is, you know, even before the whole Didi crisis, basically shortly after that、uh, listed here. You know, we had the Jack Ma disappearance that obviously created some weakness for the shares. But you know, before it really sort of went from bad to worse, there was a thinking that Baba, with its growth rate, that, that we would emerge on the other side of this, and it was trading at an enormous. Discount, but you can't really say it's trading at a discount if you have no idea what the future looks like. I mean, that actually is part of fundamental analysis, right? We need to not just take a look at what has happened, but try to be thoughtful about what will happen. And the Chinese government is making that extremely difficult. And that capital has to flow somewhere. A lot of these Chinese companies right now are uninvestable. Now, does that help Kathy Wood's largest holding in the Ark ETF of Tesla at nearly 11 percent? 
I mean, obviously Michael Burry doesn't agree with that. I'm not sure I would agree with it either, given the valuation. But I might take some of that money and put it into one of Tesla's competitors, perhaps one mm -hmm. of the U.S. automakers. And, and I think that is one of the places that that capital could and maybe should go. All right. I mean, saying that you can't use an algorithm guy, I mean, can you imagine if Amazon just randomly sent you stuff that you might be interested in based on nothing? I mean, that, because that's what an algorithm does. It will actually figure out a guy um, that you, for one, like um, a 90s ties um, and might send you some, some listings for them. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, it would be amazing if Amazon did that because I've never bought anything <laughs> on, the, on the Internet, as you know. But I understand what you're saying. And it would make for a pretty uh, interesting environment. I, this is what I said last night. I thought for the first time in a long time, Alibaba risk-reward set up really well. Well, that was clearly wrong. I mean, the move today was spectacular, given what it's done since Halloween of last year. You have to ask yourself, you know, at what point are the Chinese going to sort of lift their finger off this, you know, take their thumb off the market? What I can't believe, though, is at least until today, it has no impact whatsoever on our markets, I understand, you know, maybe the, that flow of capital has made its way here. But at a certain point, with China being the growth engine for the world, with the way it's been trading, you have to wonder, you know, at what point does it start affecting our broader market? Maybe today was the start of something. Coming up, some real talk. Why one of our traders was chasing a big loser in today's session. That is next. Plus, is there trouble brewing for the financials? Our next guest is breaking down how fintech is putting the pressure on the big banks. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of the Real Real getting slammed today. The luxury resellers now down 36% this year. Remember, Karen Fast pitched the one, this one, and you also, Karen, bought some more in today's pullback. Why? Uh, so, a few reasons. One is valuation, right? The stocks come in a lot. Um, and the story to me hasn't really changed. I know there was some disappointment around earnings. I feel like it was a, it was the story delayed a little, but not at all denied. And so I really like the valuation. The one thing that I really liked was one of my favorite investors, Bill Miller, Value Partners, seeing their 13F last night. They added meaningfully to their position. And that was as of June 30. I would not be surprised if we see them adding more the next time they file a 13F. But we're not going to see that for a while. So to me, it's just a question of valuation. If you look at the enterprise value here. For them being the really the first mover in this space, a billion one or two of of enterprise value doesn't seem to me to be at all expensive. They did pretty much everything they said they would. They were a little light on the mix of uh, merchandise that they sold. But to me, the story is still intact. I like it. I bought some here. If you're worried about consumer spending, um, a guy based on the data points you've gotten so far, and especially retail sales, it, could that be an impact on the real real? Or is this sort of a different category of spending? I actually can make an argument that maybe it works to their benefit. You know, as people are looking for bargains, they would find the real, real. And, and this is sort of, well, I mean, Karen can speak to this more intelligently than I can, but I think it probably works for the higher-end consumer as well. What I will say is post-earnings, you had a bunch of analysts come out, and although they lowered price targets pretty much across the board, you're still seeing price targets anywhere from $20 to $35. So Karen makes a compelling argument on valuations. The stock just has not traded well at all now. For quite some time. You just wonder if, if we've seen a capitulation or if that day is still ahead. Mike, is this a Holly Index stock? <laughs> it is. Uh, you know, if, if it was, then I would be behind Karen all the way. It isn't actually. As far as I know, for all of the purchases that show up at our house from time to time, none of them are coming from Real Real. 
I will say, you know, this is a, a to, sort of to Karen's point. I mean, obviously, this is early days for this company. And let's just say, for the sake of argument, that the revenue projections are intact. For that kind of growth, I would have to say that I agree that the enterprise value does look relatively reasonable here. So, uh, you know, some of the stuff that they sell may be a bargain, and perhaps the stock is too, but I might be looking for a little bit of a flush, as Guy was suggesting. Those bags or boxes or whatever the stuff comes in are flying in and out of my house. And, <laughs> and you know, the GMV growth that they, they projected for next year of, of you know, 30%. You know, we know there was a great environment for them in a world in the last 18 months where all trends on the internet were accelerated. But you know, it doesn't take away from the business that's there now. If you look at the stock, by the way, too, I mean, the $12 level looks like a very interesting level based upon where the stock has found major support in the past. All right, coming up, one disruptive group may have big banks looking over their shoulders. Our next guest is breaking down why she says fintech is creeping up and putting pressure on the financials. That is next. Plus, NVIDIA dropping today as a chipmaker gears up for earnings tomorrow. We'll tell you how options traders are plugging into this one. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. A tough day on Wall Street. Fintech, one of the groups uh, getting hit hard with PayPal, SoFi, Square, Robinhood, and Coinbase seeing red. The more traditional banking stocks also dropping. Our next guest sees even more pain ahead for the big banks as Fintech revolutionizes the space, spurs epic growth. Joining us now, Jackie Reeses, former Square Capital lead. She's now CEO of Post House Capital. Jackie, great to have you with us. Oh, thank you. Good to see you. So you wrote this white paper about the disruption um, being forged by fintech, and that's really um, caught on fire, so to speak, in, in, in banking circles. And so, Jackie, I'm wondering, you know, why do you think with, there's so much money being poured, VC money being poured into fintech these days? Why can't traditional banks do that from within with their balance sheets and massive assets? Yeah, great question. And today, the top 15 banks in the United States hold $13 trillion in assets, so the big banks hold huge balance sheets and fintechs still custody their assets at these banks and they have a role. But what you're seeing is a bifurcation of balance sheet infrastructure with traditional banks and fintechs becoming the consumer front end and the experience that customers want to use. And so you see this bifurcation into a high value trade and a low value trade. The customer front end is fast growth, highly profitable balance sheet light and has absolutely no legacy infrastructure. And so the business models between traditional banking and fintech are vastly different. Jackie, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. I, I understand what you're saying, but we're not there yet where, you know, the their back end is JP Morgan. All they do is back end. And we see vastly, vastly different valuations. Right. And and JP Morgan, for example, you know, has 50 times as much uh, assets under custody as a Robin Hood. Yeah. How is it that do you think this will continue, this valuation differential that fintech gets a forever growth multiple and legacy gets a melting ice cube multiple? Look, today you see a massive amount of funding going into fintech. And so in the last 10 years, there has been a 10x increase into fintech where in 2020 alone, you're seeing $20 billion invested in the asset class, and there's an incredible amount of invention. What you are seeing, and this is why there's a difference in the valuations, is the growth, the profits, agility on balance sheet, and no legacy. And so you have to look at the growth being achieved by the largest fintech players 
and be absolutely blown away by that levels of profitability and growth being achieved. And you contrast that with what you're seeing at the traditional banks with low single digit growth. And I think there's just a vastly different way that they're operating and growing their businesses. Who do you think is um, the most likely takeout candidate, Jackie, in fintech? Well, you know, I don't know who's a likely fintech uh, takeout candidate because these companies have achieved pretty significant scale at the top end. The companies that I see that are incredibly well positioned, and frankly, most of them have eclipsed the market cap of some of the largest banks today, are Shopify, Square, PayPal. And when we see Stripe go public, I think Square or Stripe will have a comparable market cap when it goes public as well. They're just incredible platforms and have customers that love them. They execute well and great product market fit. So who in legacy banking, if, if anyone, Jackie, should be looking over their shoulder at some of these relative upstarts thinking, you know what, in 10 years or however long, um, they might be eating my lunch. Is there anybody like I that, think you think? everyone in legacy banking should be looking over their shoulder and asking themselves, what are they deploying from a technology point of view that their customers love? And they should go back to first principles and say, do my customers love what we are doing? And if they don't, they should figure out how to build better products that customers love, have high MPS scores, and show the growth comparable to what we're seeing in fintech. I think if these banks aren't disrupting themselves, someone else is going to do it for them. Jackie, it's Karen. One last question, since I know you're a disruptor at Square Capital from the very beginning. What would you say to Jamie Dimon right now? What should he do? Oh, well, I think it's kind of easy. I think he should be buying a large-scale fintech so that he can disrupt J.P. Morgan from the inside out. I think if he doesn't do it, someone else will. And I think he's got to let that fintech run on its own and not screw it up. That's what I would do if I were in his shoes. I would love somebody for somebody to tell Jamie Dimon not to screw anything <laughs> up. Uh, Jackie, great to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Jackie Rhesus. Um, Tim, what do you think? I think if you look at the technology leapfrog also around the world that's going on, so many people that are underbanked. I mean, you know, fintech and, and is, is going to grow even faster globally and the opportunity outside of this country. And I realize we, we, we tend to get very focused on the money center banks here. And, and, but I, I just I think these companies that have been mentioned today, the SoFi, the Squares and, and PayPal. PayPal, look, PayPal had, had, I think, built a major foundation in Latin America before they even really did as much here, or at least that was part of the complementary growth. So um, agree. I think the global opportunity for these companies is even greater than what we talk about here. Guy, of course, Karen has to ask what her boyfriend should be doing um, to survive this, this fintech disruption. But in your, in your view, uh, J.P. Morgan or Square here? It's interesting. Well, first of all, you should drop the restraining order against Karen, number one. Number two, given the choice between the two, I think Square. I think Square is, still has the most growth potential and is a more interesting company. I mean, you can make an argument that you know, J.P. Morgan, where they're trading in terms of uh, price of tangible book, is getting a little ahead of itself. With that said, uh, not that I'm looking to a play, play a game of would you rather, but I'll add SoFi into that mix. And I think there's a really compelling argument out there that somebody for $15 billion can bring in SoFi mm -hmm. and then have an Anthony Noto on their bench who could be the potential heir apparent of one of these banks. So that's yeah. where I would look at. That's been out there for sure. Coming up, NVIDIA getting crunched today as the chipmaker gears up to report earnings. We've got your setup into that print when Fast Money returns.
Miss a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money Podcast. Welcome back. Here's a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. Jim is talking with the CEO of Roblox. Catch the full exclusive interview at the top of the hour on Mad Money. All right, check out shares of NVIDIA falling more than 2% as tech tumbled in today's session. The chipmaker reports earnings tomorrow after the bell. So, Mike Coe, what's the setup? Yeah, so take a look at the options activity that we're seeing in NVIDIA. We did see calls outpacing puts by about 2 to 1, although I should point point out that that's actually been about the average over the course of the last couple of weeks or so, and the semiconductors did in fact top out almost two weeks ago. Right now, the options market is implying a move of about 5.4%. That's pretty much in line with the 5% or so that the stock has averaged over the last eight quarters. And the most active options were the 200 strike calls that expire this coming Friday. We saw over 18,000 of those trade for over $3 a contract. So buyers of those calls are obviously betting that the earnings news could be good. But I would point out that those most active options contracts, the average trade size was just four contracts. So that was largely retail flows. On the institutional side, somewhat less sanguine where we were seeing some activity was the September 180 puts, actually. So it seems like there's a little bit of a split between how retail and institutional market participants are positioning themselves going into the event. And of course, we do have another full trading day to examine in terms of options flows tomorrow. Yeah. Guy, uh, whose side would you be on? It's interesting. You know, we've seen NVIDIA obviously have huge moves. We've seen over the course of the last few years a couple times where they report and it's an absolute disaster. I think what you're hoping for is that move down to 180 that Mike just talked about. That was a recent low. That would set up really well in terms of risk-reward. But the name that we've talked about forever is AMD. That had a heroic move to 122. And then the name that confuses me to no end is Taiwan Semi. And somebody has to explain to me why that is traded so miserably since February. 108.5 is a critical level for that to hold. Tim? I think it's a combination of... of Part of it's an EM asset class dynamic. I think actually they've been thrown around with EM. They're big weighting in the EEM and the VWO with the two big ETFs. I think you've gotten to a place where whether you believe Intel is slowly turning that you know, Titanic um, or not, they, they're certainly going after uh, Taiwan Semi, and, and although they're not there in the short run. Um, look, the valuation on the company, uh, not cheap. It's had an enormous run, and I think it, it more or less mirrors uh, that semiconductor index, which is it's underperformed it. Um, but I, I, I still think you have a case here where it, there is an argument that people are concerned about the longer-term growth here. Good thing we have an emerging market specialist well, in the house. I, t- I mean, it's every once in a, in a while, while, while it comes yeah. in handy. There's <laughs> really, certain moments. It really does. When. <laughs> All right. Uh, for more options action, be sure to tune into the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, going for gold, the $50 million mystery around Palantir that had us scratching our heads today. We will explain when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Call it a $50 million mystery. Data analytics company Palantir buying more than $50 million worth of, get this, gold bars in August. According to a regulatory filing, the company is able to take physical possession of the gold at any time with reasonable notice. We reached out to Palantir to find out why they wanted gold on their books. They didn't respond to our request for a comment, um, Karen, you sort of did some fine prints, looking at the fine print on this one. What did you find? Well, a little bit. So it was in the 10Q, which mm-hmm. is what they released the other day. It talked about this August purchase. So this wouldn't be on the balance sheet 
that they had in the 10Q. So we don't know how they're going to treat it. Remember, we talked about Bitcoin and how it would be treated on Tesla's balance sheet and that it would be at the fluctuation down. They would have to mark it down, but not up. I don't know if that would be the same here. I don't recall ever seeing this except for maybe a gold-related company, and that would be a raw material or a work in process or inventory or something. It's interesting. It's sort of surprising. It's kind of, we, you know, you were, we were expecting like a Bitcoin or something right, right, like right. that it's, or a, it's an altcoin. retro or something. That's I don't right. know what you would call it. It feels, it feels kind of like CIA-ish. Like it, it, I mean, if you think about also that, at least the relationship that this company has had the with, government. with the government uh-huh. and, and, and where gold has always been, uh, you know, this strategic reserve dynamic. And, right. Look, gold prices, um, this isn't a conversation about gold, but it, it probably an interesting time to be making a longer term commitment to gold. In my view, I realize, you know, Bitcoin enthusiasts say, why bother? Um, I think gold is, is proven to be very much a hedge against central banks. here. Guy, give me your best conspiracy theory. Notice they didn't buy the gold ETF. They bought actual physical bars gold bars. Gold. It's fascinating. Yeah. There's no conspiracy. Listen, I mean, I could talk about this for an hour and we only have a minute left. But I would say this is one of those days you bookmark. This is them saying, you know what, central banks are out of control, black swan event, good for them. And my sense is you're going to see more of that and maybe them dip their toe into crypto as well. Hmm. Final trade time. Let's go around the horn. Mike Coe. Yeah, I would say that if we see this weakness follow through until Friday, which is options expiration, you might want to contemplate picking up some calls in SPY. Guy Donnie. It was last night. It's tonight. Oracle made an all-time high today. Closed, I think, in the green. ORCL day two. Tim Seymour. We've talked a little bit about demand and weakness. And, and if you look at iron ore, I still think that prices hold up here, even though typically there's been huge supply response when prices have been high. BHP, not great numbers yesterday. Rio Tinto thrown around. I like that one. Rio. Karen Feinerman. Well, you know how I always say if you go home long, it's the same as buying it right here. So I'm long target. They are reporting tomorrow. So That's my final trade. I'm long right here. All right. Thank you all for watching Fast Money. See you again here tomorrow. Five more uh, CNBC is up next. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.